Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for our day. We thank you that your mercy and grace is new every morning. We thank you that we can gather together today to learn more about your word, that we may be excited about your promises so that we may live for you. And we pray that you would help us to understand the things in the book of Revelation. Help us to understand the significance of the marriage supper of the Lamb that we're heading towards as believers in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now today, dear ones, we're beginning Revelation chapter 19. Chapter 19 is packed full of good theology for the people of God. Three big ideas that we're going to learn in Revelation 19 is number one, we're going to see that there's further rejoicing in heaven over the destruction of Babylon. Number two, we're going to see preparations for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and the marriage supper of the Lamb will occur. And then also we're going to learn in Revelation 19 that Jesus Christ is going to return at the end of the 70th week to establish his 1,000-year millennial kingdom. Now, that's going to be kind of the entirety of chapter 19, but today we're just going to be covering the first 10 verses. And so I want to talk about just how John structured the first 10 verses on this slide. Notice here in Revelation 19, 1 through 5, there's going to be a song about Babylon's judgment. And the song, interestingly, is going to be sung by the angels in heaven. But these angels, after they're done singing their song, when you get to verse 5, they are going to invite believers in Jesus, these would be human beings, to also sing. So you're going to see a great song of the redeemed as we cry out, Hallelujah, our God reigns. Revelation 19, 6 through 8, you have the song of the redeemed. We're singing about the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is the supper that every time you and I partake of the Lord's Supper, we're foreshadowing this. The great eschatological banquet that will occur when the Messiah takes all of his people who have ever believed in him in the millennial kingdom he will bring us to a great banquet. And so that song is a song in preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb. Next, in verses 9 through 10, we see John is commissioned to write what he wrote by an angel. And we're going to learn some good theology here because here John is actually going to bow down and worship an angel. And the angel says, don't do that. Worship God. And we can conclude from that because not even angels should be worshipped, and yet Jesus is worshipped. Jesus, therefore, what? Well, he must be God. And so we can learn some theology from that. So with that, let's begin in the first couple of verses here where we see that even the angels are praising God. Revelation 19, 1 through 2, it says, After these things. Now remember, these things had to do in chapter 18 with what? The destruction of Babylon both economic and religious. So after these things, he says, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belongs to our God because his judgments are true and righteous for he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality and he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. Now again, dear ones, notice the phrase in the very beginning, after these things, is typically a way John will show us that he, now he's going on to a new subject. But the subject is often related to what has just preceded. So here, what we see is there's going to be a song sung by both the angels in heaven, and then of course the people of God, because of the judgment that came upon Babylon. So that's the new scene 
And that's why John says, after these things. Now notice he sees this loud voice, or hears the loud voice, of a great multitude in heaven. Now, what we have to do is interpret, well, what is this great multitude that John is hearing? Well, more than likely, they're angelic beings. And we have evidence of that previously in the book of Revelation. In fact, I've got some passages. And uh, Eric, just to let you know, I kind of lined up this row over here. They were in their seats earlier, and I just lined them up. So um, if you wouldn't mind, David, uh, reading the Revelation 5, 11 through 12. We'll get you on mic here. Now, the reason I'm going to have you all turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, verses 11 through 12, and just hold off until everybody turns there, is because you're going to see evidence that in the book of Revelation, angels do sing praises to God. Okay, so you'll see this in Revelation 5, 11 through 12. And I'm just showing you that so that you know all the way through Revelation, there is a precedent for angels singing choruses to God. So, go ahead. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Wow, amen. Can you imagine what that angelic chorus must sound like? Awesome. And I would imagine they sound better than I do in the shower. You know, I'm I'm sure their pitch is probably pretty good. I don't sing very well. I can't wait for a a redeemed body. One day I maybe will be able to hold a tune as well. But I can't imagine what that must sound like. Well, that's what you hear again. The angels are praising God because he has poured out his wrath upon Babylon. And in so doing, he has avenged the blood of the saints, and is bringing salvation for the people of God. Now, you also had another passage I assigned to you, and this is 1 Peter, I believe if I gave it right, yeah, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. Now, everyone turn your Bibles there, 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. And the reason I want you to see this passage is I want you to see that angels, even though they themselves aren't really participants of the gospel in the sense that they are saved by the blood of the Lamb, What's very interesting is they're always curious to look into the things concerning the gospel. It's something that they are involved, obviously, in aiding God. God uses them for his purposes. But they're also interested in the gospel itself. And this passage shows this. So go ahead, David. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Even angels long to look unto these things. Wow, amen. So even angels long to look in the glories of the gospel, and now they're singing praises here. So praise God for that. Thank you for reading that. So now, notice here what they're crying out. The angels are crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Does everyone see that at the end of verse 1? Now I want to talk about hallelujah in just a moment, but notice after that they say salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. And I want you to think of this idea of salvation, power, and glory 
are things that ultimately belong to God, but to a lesser degree, they can belong to human beings. Let me give you an example. Think about General Patton. I like to use him. Many people know who he is, famous general in World War II. He saved salvation belonged to him to a lesser degree. He saved the 101st Airborne that was encircled at Bastogne in the Battle of the Bulge. He had power. He had command of the Third Army, many armored divisions underneath him. And he even had some glory. There was weightiness attached to General Patton. And so my point in saying that is there, to a lesser degree, human beings can bring salvation. They do have glory and they do have power. But what's interesting when we look at God, he is the one who has ultimate salvation. He's the one who saves us from his own wrath. And that's ultimately the salvation that every person needs. A lot of people today look at salvation as an issue where they want to be saved from some circumstance here and now. Perhaps it's a boring life. Perhaps it's a a life where people find themselves in a meaningless job, quote-unquote. That's what they feel. Maybe it's people that have different physical ailments, etc. But the ultimate salvation that we all need is eternal life. We need to be saved from the wrath of God, and only God has that. So people can find any other human being, any other idol, any other false god, they will not have ultimate salvation. Think about glory, ultimate weightiness, the idea that God would receive all honor, it, it really only ultimately is going to be given to him. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord. And in fact, that's going to be bestowed upon Christ. We see it in Isaiah 45. We see it in Philippians 2.10. Yes, Adam. Well, and when it comes to God's glory, that's something that he has intrinsically in and of himself, Amen. but something that he reveals through his works, through his the revelation. Son, and yeah. so even to Moses, when he says, uh, now your fathers, I did not reveal myself as Yahweh, but as God Almighty. Yeah. Uh, but then he says to them, uh, he will reveal. And he goes on to say, I will do this. I will do that. You know, Amen. I will bring judgments on Pharaoh. I will bring you out by a strong and mighty hand. Yeah. I will bring you to myself. I will bring you, uh, I will bring you to the land that I promised to your, uh, and swore to your fathers. Uh, and you will be my people. I will be your God. And then you will know that I am Amen. Yahweh. And so even there, they don't even know his name. Yeah, wow. they, they know how to pronounce it. They've heard it like the patriarchs. But it's in the actual events of salvation and judgment where you have the, the revelation of God's name, his glory, his power uh, to his people. Amen. And, and to the so world. His, his disclosure of his own glory is seen through his redemptive acts, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. I think about even, uh, we studied Romans 9 yeah. not that long ago, and we see that God is glorified in the vessels of wrath mm-hmm. and the vessels of mercy. He gets all oh, the glory. And what, one last thought, too. I, I remember D.A. Carson even talking about where you have uh, David, he wants to build a house for Yahweh, and Nathan says, uh, you know, David, go for it. The Lord is with you. Yeah. Uh, and then the Lord speaks to Nathan, and yeah. you know he has other plans. He's uh, going to build David a house. Yeah, he's going to yeah. build David a house. And so God is also the God who not only is glorious in himself and reveals that through his acts of salvation uh, in judgment, but also he's the one who glorifies his people. Wow. It's, not that, it's not that David, oh, this was David's great idea to build a temple, you know, uh, or a, a house for God to dwell in, but... You know, God had, he had other plans. Right, so. amen. Well said. Thank you, Adam. Yeah, the thing about also power, power, the term that's used there is dunamis. God has the power to save. 
I always think about this term when it comes to, remember John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him? The idea of no one can is dunamis. No one has the power to come to God. We don't even have the power to believe. And so all salvation comes from God. He has the power to save. Salvation is completely of God. And so that's why he's being glorified here even by the angels. Now, notice the term in red, hallelujah. That's from hallel, the idea in Hebrew of praise, and it's a shortened form of Yahweh. And so this is a praising of Yahweh. So that's why when you and I are singing songs upstairs, hallelujah, we're praising Yahweh. That's what we're doing. Now, I had some passages. I want to show you that in the Psalms, this phrase is often used, praise Yahweh. And you often see it, for example, in the Hallel Psalms, Psalms 113 through Psalm 118. And I want to give you an example of that. Turn your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 115, 16 through 18. I want you to see that oftentimes Yahweh's name is praised when he brings salvation to his people, but also judgment upon his enemies. And we'll see an example of that here in Psalm 115. I love this passage verses 16 through 18, because it talks about the great communal confidence that the people of God can have in the salvation that he brings to his people. Psalm 115, verses 16 through 18. I'll let you turn there. Everybody turn there. Notice it says, The heavens are the heavens of Yahweh, but the earth he has given to the sons of men. The dead do not praise Yahweh, nor do any who go down into silence. So stop there. Verse 17, you probably have parallel synonymous parallelism there. In other words, the dead do not praise Yahweh, nor do any who go down into silence. It's saying the same thing. So the idea is that the dead, they don't praise Yahweh. And therefore, maybe the implication, we should do it while we're alive. But what's very interesting is notice verse 18. I think you probably do maybe have a contrast here. He says, but as for us, we will bless Yahweh from this time forth and forever. Praise Yahweh. And I love that because here the people of God, the great confidence that we can have, yes, the dead won't praise him, but we will for how long? Well, forever. Why? Because we're not the dead. We're those who are alive. We really have eternal life. The moment you believe, you were created to praise him forever. Isn't that beautiful? And by the way, when we get a few verses later in verse 5, we're going to see that the people in heaven are going to be praising Yahweh. So that, yes, Levon. Well, I'm a little bit confused because, um, like Paul says, I have a desire to depart and to be with Christ. So I've always believed that when Christians die, their soul goes to be with God, but they're not praising God. I don't... That's what I'm pointing that. out is I don't think... I think you're exactly right. I think that's the implication is we will praise him forever. And so I don't think that the praising of God's people ceases at death. I think that that's for those who are dead in the ultimate sense. Now, certainly the death here that's being referred to is physical death. But yes, physical death for the believer is separation of body and soul. Our body goes into the ground. And our soul goes to be with the Lord in heaven where, I, yes, we will, in fact, be giving praise. Yes. Also, we were just uh, reading in our Wednesday night uh, Bible study yeah. uh, with uh, Isaiah. Uh, Hezekiah, he has a poem uh, giving thanks to God uh, for he, w- he was at the point of death, wasn't yeah. he, uh, in Isaiah 38. 
uh, and he speaks about how the dead don't praise you, but the living. And there, his focus is on, I mean, really, I suppose the the temple worship of, of God at that time sure. uh, for the for the saints. Uh, yeah. And so, looking at that contrast there of going to Sheol uh, versus uh, being with with the living, uh, the people of God yeah, praising amen. them there. But you also have further revelation, and also. Yeah. And also sometimes more more detail uh, yeah, than, amen. than what Hezekiah was giving at that point. Yeah, that's right. Well said. Yeah, thank you, Adam. And, yeah, and, Eric. Well, and in the resurrection, what will we be doing? We'll be in raised bodies praising God for exactly. all eternity. And so Isn't it's, that exciting? It's not just going to be. It's not just going to be in heaven. Yeah, amen. Yeah. Yeah, I, I actually keep thinking of John fourteen, and the parallelism. Yeah. Uh, my understanding. Uh, you know, the saints will be raptured. We will spend yeah. seven years, and we will be with Christ, you know. Uh, and those who have died in Christ even before are with Christ. Yeah. Um, and, so, and so that's a wonderful thing. We're, we're, we're with Christ, so there's, an, there's that. Um, we're not separated from him, and I don't think people understand the depth of our separation from God. I don't think any of us really do. Mm. But so then in response to what LaVon brought up, that's that's seven years that we will be intimately and fellowshipping with one another and with Jesus Christ, which we can't describe exactly what that'll be like. But then, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, that's when just rejoicing on steroids will break out. (laughs) So that's kind of the way I think that if you you kind of take John 14 and the parallelism there that we'll be with Christ. We'll be talking about that, Eric. Yeah, Yeah, excellent. I'm I'm glad you give us a preview of that. Yeah, John 14, 1, believe God, believe also in me, Jesus says. In the next verse, he says, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it weren't so, I would have told you. And you're right, he's going to come to bring us to where he is so that where he is, there you and I may be also. And it is a great promise, absolutely. So this ultimately looks forward to resurrection life. So we will be praising God here. The angels are doing it. Now, notice here as we continue in verse 2, we see the reason for the praising. We have a because clause. Notice in caps, this is a quotation here from Psalm 19.9. It says, because his judgments are true and righteous. Now, just stop there for a moment. One of the reasons the angels are praising God is because as he judges Babylon, they can clearly proclaim that his judgments are true and righteous. And I want you to remember that where we are within the 70th week of Daniel, we're at the end. And at this point, you really have the fixed destiny of all people. Either people are going to be aligned with Antichrist or they're going to be aligned with Christ. It's one or the other. And so this is a really a good capstone to say at the end of the day when God finally pours judgment... Yes, his judgments are righteous and true. In fact, notice he continues with the four clause. Why are his judgments true and righteous? For he has judged the great harlot who was corrupting the earth with her immorality. Now, who was the great harlot? Well, that was Babylon. And we learned Babylon was not just a city, but it was also a worldwide system that was in rebellion against God. And notice here, when he judges them, that is Babylon... It's Babylon for her immorality. Now, the term here, I believe, uh, perhaps you have it in your Greek text there, Adam, but it's probably pornea. And now, remember the immorality. Pornea often has to do with sexual immorality. But first and foremost, it has to do here with Babylon. It has to do with spiritual immorality. Because Babylon led people into idolatry, they end up living that out in their lives and engaging in physical immorality. 
So I want you to think of that physical immorality that we see on the outward, the outward actions of human beings is always in some sense an indication of the inward pornea or immorality of having idolatry. So if someone is living an immoral life, in a sense, it's because they're not believing the promises of God, because they have a spiritual immorality first and foremost. That's the issue. So that's why he's judging them, that God judged Babylon for the immorality. Now, notice also it says, and he has avenged the blood of his bond servants on her. Now, notice in caps at the very end, when it says he has avenged the blood of his bond servants on her, that's a great promise that God had given all the way back in the law in Deuteronomy 32, 43. And I love that because here you see that God is fulfilling all of the promises that he gave even back in the law. The law promised one day that God would avenge his people. And of course, Deuteronomy 32 is about Israel, but here it's really about all of his people, Jews and Gentiles, who will encapsulate, I think, the, the elect. And so God is judging them. Now, let's continue on as we see the angels' continued praise. Verses 3 through 5, it says, And a second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke rises up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who sits on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And a voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. Now, do you notice in the beginning in verse 3, this underline, it says, And a second time they said. Now, the reason I point that out is it tips us off that we have the same group, namely the angels, that are giving the praise. So for a second time, they have this song. Okay, now, notice in all caps, what do they say? They say, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, that is a quotation or a citation from Isaiah 34.10. Now, Isaiah 34.10 is about God coming to wreak vengeance upon the nations. And it's interesting, in Isaiah 34, the Edomites are singled out. Why? Because the Edomites are often used as the prototypical enemies of God. Remember Esau, of course, from whom the Edomites come, was the one who tried to kill Jacob. Okay? So I want to read, I want to show you where this comes from. In fact, Ryan, you had Isaiah 34. Let's read, we'll read the first four verses, and then we'll read verses 8 through 10, I believe is what I gave you for the sake of time. So if everybody could turn your Bibles to Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 4. We'll start there. We'll see where this quote comes from and why it's being used. All right, go ahead, Ryan. Isaiah 34, 1 through 4. Draw near, O nations, to hear and give attention, O peoples. Let the earth hear and all that fills it, the world and all that comes from it. For the Lord is enraged against all the nations and furious against all their hosts. He has devoted them to destruction, has given them over for slaughter. Their slain shall be cast out and the stench of their corpses shall rise. The mountains shall flow with their blood. All the hosts of heaven shall rot away, and the skies roll up like a scroll. All their hosts shall fall as leaves from the vine, like figs falling from the fig tree. Thank you. So here I think this cataclysmic language really does foreshadow the future day of the Lord. It'll ultimately occur in the future that God is going to bring all nations to judgment. But remember, in the near term, when Isaiah was writing that, 
there were foreshadowings of that. There were down payments, whether it was God judging the Assyrians, whether it was his judging the Babylonians, the Edomites, the Egyptians, etc. He gives us down payments. But here, this is a worldwide cataclysmic event. In fact, it's even cosmic to the point where the host of heaven are being affected. Now, continue reading in verses 8 through 10, and then you'll see where this quote comes from. So starting in verse 8. For the Lord has a day of vengeance, a year of recompense for the cause of Zion. And the streams of Eden shall be turned into pitch and her soil into sulfur. So stop right there. Notice he has a day, a day of vengeance or a year of vengeance, did he say? It's a day. Day of vengeance. So yeah, this is in keeping then with the day of the Lord, isn't it? And notice who he singles out. He singles out the Edomites. Why are the Edomites singled out? Well, oftentimes the Edomites would help the other enemies of God sack Jerusalem and go after the people of Judah. So in some sense, the Edomites represent the enemies of God par excellence. And I think that that's why they're being singled out here, perhaps. So I'm sorry, Ryan, keep going. All right. Amen to verse 10. Night and day it shall not be quenched. Its smoke shall go up forever. From generation to generation it shall lie waste. None shall pass through it forever and ever. Now, notice the forever and ever language. That's where this quote comes from here in Isaiah, or excuse me, in Revelation 19. It's from Isaiah 34:10. But the question in this text that kind of puzzled me, and I'll try to give a resolution to it, is how is it that Babylon, that smoke would rise up forever and ever? I would imagine that when we have the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, that that city would cease to burn. Well, I think here, more than likely, the reason why the smoke is depicted as rising forever and ever is because in the very next chapter, this starts to blend into the eternal judgment that happens in the lake of fire. Those who are participants in Babylon are going to be participants in the lake of fire that goes on forever and ever. In fact, turn your Bibles ahead, if you will, to Revelation 20, verse 10, and you'll see this idea of the forever and ever reiterated. Revelation 20:10. So remember, this is after the millennial kingdom, you're going to have the devil who deceives the nations one last time. He's going to be thrown into the lake of fire with the beast and the false prophet. Revelation 20.10, it says, And the devil who deceived them, that's the nations, was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So again, that's what I think is going on in Revelation 19. The forever and ever rising of Babylon's smoke blends into this idea that those who are participants are going to be participants in the lake of fire forever and ever. And by the way, Revelation 20, 15, five verses later, all people are at the white throne judgment. All unbelievers will have their part, they'll have their part in the lake of fire as well. Yes, Scott. So during the entire millennium, Babylon will be smoking, reminding the unregenerate judgment of God, right? <laughs> you know, I don't know. You know, it's funny. I, I can't say that that's incorrect, but I don't know if that's the point. That's what I'm trying to wrestle with. Forever and ever typically has to do with some form of without end. Sometimes for the physical place, it's just focusing on the permanent destruction, too. Yeah, that's a good point. It, it, it ceases to exist, um, maybe the, the, the point, too. But again, that's what I'm wrestling with, is how can the smoke rise up forever and ever? I think it's eternal destruction. Edom is gone forever. You can't go back to Basra and find the Edomites. God really did smite them. And in the same way, Babylon's capital is forever done. 
But I think perhaps the reason why that forever and ever language is used here is because the ultimate forever and ever judgment, we do see it in Revelation 20. Yeah, I'm sorry, I got one more and I'll come to you, Adam. Yeah, Christy. When we were in um, Israel, we went to a place called Solomon's Pillars. Did you go there? And Ryan was explaining the, um, that the, idea of the lake of fire could exist in a place like that it's it's really set up to be it could be like a smokestack almost but it was Mm. all rock and it was large and um so he was talking about that this forever and ever could be this physical place outside of jerusalem outside of the new Mm. jerusalem that the smoke would be seen forever and ever it could physically so i don't know if that relates to this Our brains were kind of done by this time, but... (laughs) I know, I know how tiring that can be. Um, Yeah, Adam. So connecting it to Isaiah, at the end of 57, uh, which ends the section, or 48, uh, 57, and then 66, it projects where it says, uh, there is no peace for the wicked, says my God. It keeps expanding, and when you get to the the very end of the book, uh, it speaks about uh, God's people coming to him, the nations bringing them, uh, for as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me, says Yahweh, so shall your offspring and your name remain from new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath. All flesh shall come to worship before me, declares Yahweh. And they shall go out and look on the dead bodies of the men who have rebelled against me, for their worms shall not die, their fire shall not be quenched, and they shall be an abhorrence to all flesh. Yeah, amen. So yeah, it's, so there it's is projecting that. as you keep going on, and yeah. sometimes even when you come to the end, the Moabites are now, you know, they're yeah. God's enemies. Isn't that who who's, who's trampling yeah, out his wrath? Yeah, absolutely. That's right. Them. Yeah, and the Edomites, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, very good. Yeah, and you know, this is the issue. Metaphysically, we don't know how God will do it. We don't know, um, you know, it's referred to as the lake of sulfur at times, or the lake of fire. Metaphysically, we don't know how he's going to do it, but we do see evidence as... Um, Adam just cited from Isaiah 66 that indeed the people of God will see the torment of the unregenerate. So, yeah, I don't think that that's... um, Yeah, their fire should not be quenched. And and that's what uh, Jesus quotes from in in the Gospels as well. So, yeah, very, very good point, Christy. Thank you. Thanks, Adam, as well. So, yeah, that's uh, some of these ideas that are connected into the smoke rising up forever and ever. Now, one of the issues that comes up here in verse 4 is remember the 24 elders... Um, we had some debate as to who they were, and I want you to recall that these 24 elders are angelic beings. Now, remember, the reason why we came to that conclusion, that they must be angels as well, was found back in Revelation 5. And I just want to remind you of that, do a little bit of a, a review, so that we remember the 24 elders are, in fact, angelic beings. Now, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 5, 8 through 10. And I want to focus on this for just a moment to show you that these are angels who are also praising God. So turn to Revelation 5, 8 through 10, and we're going to see proof, I think, that these 24 elders are indeed not human elders, but they are, in fact, angelic beings. And there's a clue as to why that may be here. Revelation 5, 8 through 10. Let's read this text. Here we have this throne room scene. It says, When he had taken the book, that would be the Lamb, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each one holding a harp, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. That would be, I would imagine, the 24 elders and the the four living creatures. 
saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain, and purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You have made them, again, that's third person, plural, to be a kingdom and priest to our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Now, the idea there in verse 10 that you have made them to be a kingdom of priests, remember who's singing this. It's the, what, the 24 elders. And it's, in fact, the four living creatures. And so the fact that they're talking about them, you've made them to be a kingdom of priests, seems to indicate that this redemption has to do with mankind, and therefore the ones who are singing about it are not included in it. And that may be an indication that the 24 elders are not human beings, but they're in fact angelic beings. Okay, does that make sense? So with that in mind, when we get to Revelation 19, these are more than likely angelic beings who are singing as well. Now, notice here though, when you get to verse 5, not only are the angels singing praises to God, but now you have an invitation for all of God's people to sing. It says, And a voice came from the throne, saying, Give praise to your God, all you his bondservants, you who fear him, the small and the great. So here we have an invitation for every single believer to participate in praising God. The small and the great is probably in terms of how we see things from an earthly perspective. We see some people who are believers may have great authority. They may be a governor. But you also may have just some lowly worker in some third world country who would seem lowly by the world standards. But what's interesting is according to the gospel, every person is precious to Jesus Christ and all are going to end up worshiping him just like the angels do. Now, from there... Oh, notice, by the way, I want to just point out, notice it says, give praise to our God. Okay, now that our God is first person plural. And and again, I think that that's another indication that those who are invited to praise God are in fact believers only, obviously. It's our God. And I love it. We are his people and he is our God. That's one of the great promises. Uh, Adam just talked about it. You will be my God and I will be, or I'm sorry, I will be your God and you will be my people was the great promise that God had given in the law itself. And so here we see all believers are invited to sing. And so we see the song of the redeemed, verses 6 through 7. It says, Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude, and like the sound of many waters, and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him, For the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Now, notice here, we have to answer the question, who is singing praises here? And the question, is it the angels, or is it believers? The scholar that I've read most often, Robert Thomas, who put out an excellent commentary on the book of Revelation, he claims these are still angels, and he may be right. By the way, Robert Thomas just died recently. Uh, It wasn't many years ago. He taught at Master Seminary. He was in his 90s, and he was still teaching and writing, and um, he did a wonderful job. But Robert Thomas would claim that these are angelic beings still, and he would claim that because the language, it's interesting, it's singing about themselves in a sense. The bride has made herself ready, and he would say, well, that's an evidence that it must be the angel singing about it. But here, let me give you three reasons why I think perhaps 
the voice of the great multitude here is, in fact, believers. Number one, notice at the very beginning in verse 6, he says, then I heard. Now, that usually tips us off that there's a, quite, a little bit of a change. Uh, perhaps there's a new scene. Perhaps there's a new subject or focus. Perhaps this indicates that there's a new subject that's singing, namely the redeemed saints. Number two, even though the bride is singing about, or I'm sorry, being sung about, it's not inconceivable to, to think that the church can sing about itself and about what God has done. But number three, to me, the most important reason why I think we should see the great multitude here as being a reference to believers is because we just saw the invitation for all believers in verse 5 to sing. And so to me, naturally, that would lead us to the idea that here you have the song of the redeemed. Now, again, I can't tell you that Robert Thomas is wrong, but for those reasons, I would differ with him and say, I think perhaps this is the song of the redeemed. Now, notice what do they say? If this is the song of the redeemed, what are we singing? Well, we're singing hallelujah. Again, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I love this. Notice here the great cry of the saints, if it is indeed the saints, is that our God reigns. Notice, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Isn't that what you and I long for? In fact, we see it all the way back in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus is giving his role model prayer. Remember his disciples asked, teach us to pray. And Jesus says, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The great prayer that Jesus teaches us is a prayer in which we long for God's reign to come upon the earth. Revelation 5.10, we see as early as the throne room, the great promise that one day all the saints are going to reign where? Upon the earth. It's not sitting on a cloud strumming a harp. We're going to reign upon the earth. Isn't that wonderful? Now let me ask you, are we reigning upon the earth now? No. There's going to be a change, isn't there? And the change occurs as a result of the direct interference of Christ himself. In the 70th week of Daniel, he raptures his church. He pours his wrath upon the world. And at the end of the 70th week, he is coming to judge his enemies at the battle of Armageddon. And he is going to bring his saints into the kingdom and the marriage supper of the Lamb. So that's what's being sung about. Yes, Brian. Uh, when you compare this to the Jewish uh, wedding, which we all know it's a reflection of, yeah. to me what is mind-blowing is the, uh, the betrothal of the uh, uh, bride to the groom in a regular wedding would be when they are young children. And here it's eternity past, okay? And and this is the culmination of all of history right up to that point. This yeah. is the promises from eternity past. I yeah, mean, amen. Hello. Yeah. <laughs> Brian, you should just drop the mic then. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, you're right. Absolutely. In fact, I'll talk about that betrothal process. You're absolutely right. There's such beauty in that to see that, yes, here the great plan for the bride to be taken to the bridegroom is going to come about. We really will reign with him upon the earth. And as we see 
politically the world turn against us um, and you know more and more Christians marginalized even in our own country it gives us hope doesn't it to look at these great promises yeah we do rain now what's interesting is I didn't see um, notice the NASB usually sees connections to the Old Testament and it puts it in caps you've noticed that on our previous slides notice in verse 7 it says let us rejoice and be glad I think that rejoicing and being glad is a reference probably to Psalm 118 Psalm 118 is, remember, let us rejoice. Uh, This is the day the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. I think that's probably an allusion back to that, and I'll explain why. But notice, first of all, in verse 7, he says, let us rejoice and be glad. This is a horatory response. It's the whole church inviting one another to rejoice in the salvation that the Lamb, our God, has brought us. But notice when it says rejoice and be glad, I want you to remember that back in Psalm 118, this was a promise that was sung about in the new temple era Um, and let me set up the situation for you i'll have you turn your bibles to psalm 118 but remember psalm 118 is part of those hallel psalms where god is praised let me just talk a little bit about this psalm psalm 118 please turn your bibles to verses psalm 118 verses 22 through 24 now, as you're turning there, I believe the best evidence would suggest that Psalm 118 was probably penned right after the second temple was completed, probably in Ezra chapter 6. And there's various reasons for that. So you can read about the second temple being completed, Ezra chapter 6. Well, what's interesting is these Hallel Psalms, like Psalm 118, it really talks first in Psalm 113 about this great exodus, Psalm 114, the exodus from Egypt. But if you go to Psalm 115, then you have the call for the people of God to forsake idolatry. Psalm 116, you have the salvation from death. Psalm 117, you have the praise of God's cassette, his loving kindness. Psalm 118 to me seems like the arrival of God's people. They they they, they had the exodus in, in Psalm 114. And by the time you get to Psalm 118, you have this arrival at the temple of God. And what happens in Psalm 118 is this is often sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Okay, so let me read this and I'll explain, I think, the significance of it. Psalm 118, verse 22, it says, The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. So stop there. Remember, everyone is entering into the gates. Blessed is the one who enters into the gates of Yahweh. Open the gates of Yahweh, I think it says. But when you get to verse 2, you see that all the promises are centered on this chief cornerstone. And we know from the New Testament that that chief cornerstone is indeed the Messiah. Indeed, the Messiah is the one who brings all of these promises to bear, and he brings them about. Now, notice verse 23. He says, This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So here's my point. Psalm 114, you have the Exodus. Psalm 118, you have this Feast of Tabernacles. And so for generations, the Jews would come up to Jerusalem and they would sing this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of Yahweh. And yes, it could rightly be said that anyone who was coming to worship Yahweh was blessed. But ultimately, the Messiah would come one day to Jerusalem the chief cornerstone. And that would be a unique day, the day in which the Lord has made, and we should rejoice and be glad. In other words, I think that ultimately this psalm is fulfilled 
in the work of the Messiah. It's a messianic looking forward to the time when his people reign with Messiah in the kingdom. And so it's very fitting then that verse 7 of Revelation 19 says, let us rejoice and be glad in it. You and I are really going to rejoice in the day when the Messiah returns to Jerusalem and he brings about this glorious kingdom. Let me just tell you a little story real quick. Years ago, I was a nervous wreck. My wife was pregnant with our little boy and he, she was in a high-risk pregnancy. She was older. She was 46 when she had him. And they, they put her on bed rest, and they said every day that goes by, his lungs are going to be healthier. So he was five and a half weeks early when he came. Well, I wasn't expecting it. We were watching Bill Cosby. It was before his scandals and so forth. We were laughing. And all of a sudden, her water broke, and I told her to put the water back in. <laughs> I didn't know how it worked. I thought you, if your water comes out, you can just put that back in, just drink or something. But no, we were going to have our son that day. And it was five and a half weeks early. Well, I'm worried the fact that his lungs may not be developed. And so I'm very depressed. I'm depressed that the Lord didn't answer my prayer and keep him in the womb five and a half weeks. That's how I thought. I'm just being honest with you. So I go to the hospital. I'm kind of sulking. And there was a nurse, this gal from Africa, and she was a believer, and she says, she cited this very passage. Let, there's, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Well, here I'm a pastor of a church, and I have some nurse preaching to me, and I'm thinking to myself, well, doesn't she know that this is ultimately about the eschatological, eschatological fulfillment when the Messiah reigns, and I'm going into this, all this. But here I'm thinking, this woman is trusting Yahweh, and she treats every day in light of her trust in Yahweh as the day that the Lord has made. And she's rejoicing in it while I'm sulking like a lunatic worried about things that I have no control over. And so my point that I realized at that moment was the fact that Christ is coming back and there's the unique day that the Lord has made and we can rejoice in it that he is coming one day. It'll be a unique day when he comes and he reigns with us and all of our enemies are put under our feet. We have resurrected bodies. That is a unique day that the Lord has made and we can rejoice and be glad in it. But it also means that every day is a day that we can really rejoice in and be glad in, in light of that unique day. So that's something that in my life, this scripture kind of meant a lot. And I hope it does for you as well, that every day in light of the great promises of God can be a day that you can rejoice and be glad in. All right, now, here we have, notice it says in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. The marriage supper of the Lamb, as Brian was just talking about, is an extremely significant event. It is the great messianic banquet that the Lord's Supper ends up foreshadowing. So every time you and I are partakers of the Lord's Supper, we're really foreshadowing this great messianic banquet that's going to come. Now, I saw some questions or some hands. Well, this is kind of going back into that psalm yeah. that you just had done. Um, because, you know, when it says that, let us rejoice and be glad in it, Lord, save us. And I, yeah. is it too far of a stretch where if the Jewish people were reading this, because it says, Lord, save us, we know the word Joshua, the name Joshua means Yahweh saves. Yeah. And of course, Jesus is just a form of Joshua. Yeah, amen. Would they kind of have understood that or is that a stretch? No, I don't think so. I think ultimately those who believed did see that Messiah would come 
and save them. What's interesting is in Psalm 118.26, two verses after I'd cited that, doesn't it say, uh, blessed is the one who comes in the name of Yahweh? I think, I, I did kind of some research into that. I think that originates uh, from Isaiah, Isaiah 59, where you have the, the Redeemer who comes to Zion. So think about it, through the New Testament, the, John the Baptist is looking for the one who comes. So there's this phrase, and he understands it as a messianic phrase. He says, I baptize you with water, but the one who comes after me, and I think he's citing Psalm 118.26, he's citing Isaiah 59, the one who comes after me is going to baptize you in the spirit and fire. Remember when John the Baptist is worried that, hey, is Jesus really the one? He doesn't say, remember, he has that moment, he's going to be beheaded. He knows he's going to die. And so he sends word back, are you the one who comes? And he's citing that Psalm 1826. Psalm 1826 is a messianic reference. The New Testament writers understood it that way. So I think you're exactly right. Ultimately, it's fulfilled in him. But there was foreshadowings of it all throughout history from the Second Temple time period when they were celebrating. So there were other fulfillments of it, but the ultimate fulfillment, I think, is in Messiah. Yeah. Well, I think, uh, I'm not mistaken, the Isaiah passage that you referenced, too, whose way is he preparing? Yeah, the way of the Lord. Yahweh. Yeah, amen, amen. Yeah, there you go. Thank you. <laughs> Very good. Yeah, so yeah, good, good catch, Luann. Excellent. Now, I know we only have 10 minutes, and what I want to do is I want to talk about this imagery of the marriage supper of the Lamb. I want to talk about the bridegroom imagery. It's all over the Bible. Let's talk a little bit about the imagery of this great wedding feast. First of all, you have a bridegroom. Well, that's Jesus. Jesus is depicted in Scripture as a great bridegroom. Um, you see the bride. The bride is the church. You have a great banquet, a wedding feast that's going to come. That's the marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, this wedding language analogy is seen all the way through the New Testament. In fact, turn your Bibles to John 3.29. I want you to see that John is depicted as the best man. So if there's going to be a wedding between Jesus, the bridegroom, and the bride, the church, well, there has to be a best man. Well, who's that? Well, it's John the Baptist, and he says as much. In John 3.29. So I'm just showing you this so you see that, yeah, this imagery really is played upon in the Bible. We're not importing it. It really is there, as Brian was pointing out. Bless you, Bob. Uh, John 3.29. John says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. Well, that's Jesus. But the friend of the bridegroom, that would be himself, John the Baptist, who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. So the reason I'm citing you that passage is I want you to understand that this idea of Jesus being a bridegroom, the church being the bride, and there being a real marriage supper, that's all over the Bible. And so let me explain how a wedding would occur in Jesus' day. Typically, the way a wedding would occur and the way a man would be married is, first of all, you had to set a bride price. The father of the bride would set a price because his daughter was very precious this price would often rival the cost of a new home and in hebrew this price is called the bride price a maher you see it referenced in exodus 22:16 and elsewhere now once the bride price had been agreed upon the father would have the son pay it now let's liken that to what christ did what did christ do for us well he paid the maher, didn't he? But the bride price that he paid 
wasn't just the cost of a new home, that sort of extravagant price, but it was own, his own life. And that's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you and I are to forsake immorality. Why? He says, for you've been bought with a price. What kind of price have we been purchased with? Well, it wasn't just money that was you know, exceedingly expensive, but it was with Christ's own blood. So after that, what would happen after the bride price was paid, the son would go back to the father's house and he'd prepare a place in the father's house for his bride. So do you remember we had the illusion, I think, Eric, you brought up John 14. In my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, Jesus is preparing a place for us in the father's house. Now, while the groom would be away preparing a place in the father's house, he knew his bride would be lonely, so he would send her gifts as a reminder of his love. What does it say in Ephesians 4? When Christ ascended on high, he gave us gifts. He gave some as apostles, some as prophets, some as pastors, some as teachers, evangelists, etc. He gave us gifts. So you and I aren't left as orphans. The groom really does love us. But as he's in his father's house, he's preparing a place, and he's going to come back imminently. The bride never knew when the groom was going to return. They had to be ready. That's the point in Matthew 25, when you have the parable of the ten virgins. Remember, they had to be ready at all times. Why? They didn't know when the groom was going to come back. When the wedding party comes back, you have to be ready. So when the groom returns, he takes the bride back to the father's house, and what's interesting is the groom and the bride end up going into the marriage chamber right away while there's a seven-day feast that goes on. And in that feast, right prior to it, prior to the seven days, when the two go into the marriage chamber, you have the best man, John the Baptist, would be listening, and he would say, yes, there was consummation. And then you would have a seven-day feast, and after the seven-day feast, the couple comes out of the marriage chamber... Now think about the significance of seven days. What are we studying in the book of Revelation from chapters 4 through 22? Really, the 70th week of Daniel, at least to chapter 19, the last seven years. It's a week. Okay, so here you have the groom and the bride. They come out at the end of that seven-day period, and then they would have this great feast, the wedding banquet. Well, that's the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that's one of the reasons why we know that it occurs at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. It doesn't happen at the beginning of the 70th week. It happens at the end, the great wedding banquet. That's the idea. In fact, this is why it's so significant then that Jesus promised that he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he drank it anew with us in his Father's kingdom. In fact, notice in Matthew 26, 29, he says, But I say to you, I will not drink of this fruit of the wine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Yeah, Eric. Just, uh, you know, the, the, the parallels with the Hebrew uh, marriage traditions are so profound. And yeah. I just wanted to add two other things, and that is that the bride had to agree. In other words, no one forced the bride. You know, the, 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 the young man would go with his father and speak to the bride's father, but the bride was not forced, okay? She had to be willing and agreeable. And then the other thing is the bride had to wait and I'm sure that that was a challenge, yeah. that, that, you know, she had to be faithful. So yeah. it's just like with us. We have to be willing, and we have to be faithful. Amen. Well said. Good points. Thank you. Yeah. We have to be faithful. Exactly. We're waiting for the groom to come back. 
And I think sometimes it's hard for guys. We don't like to think of ourselves as a bride. Uh, it's a, but you're right. In a cosmic sense, that's what it is. And we have to be faithful while the groom is way making a place for us. By the way, uh, further evidence, too, that we are hidden from God's wrath in the bridal chamber, I think can be seen even in passages like Isaiah 26. Um, in fact, who has, I gave Isaiah 26 to Ed. Um, Eric, if you could just give the mic to Ed. Ed's going to read to us Isaiah 26. What was it I gave you, Ed? Isaiah 26, 19 through 21. 19 through 21. Listen to the words here. Now, and just this... before, I'm sorry, before you read that, Ed, everyone turn your Bibles to Isaiah 26, 19 through 21, because I want everyone to see this. And I wish we had time to get into further detail, but we'll continue it next time. But the Isaiah wording 20... might be slightly different. This is the uh, Jewish Publication Society of America okay. version. Okay. That's all right. We'll go yeah, with it. I would think. Yeah. <laughs> Thy dead shall live. This is verse 19. Thy dead shall live. My dead body shall ri- arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the, the dust. For okay, so stop right there, Ed. So stop right there. Here we have a reference, I think, to the resurrection. So isn't it interesting? Right after the resurrection, then what occurs? So keep reading. So we have resurrection. For thy dew is as the dew of light. And the earth shall bring light to life, the shades. Verse 20, come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers. So stop right there, Ed. The chambers there, um, I wrote down the Hebrew term, kether, the inner chamber here usually has to do with a bedroom. Okay, so here you have the call to the people of God. After the resurrection, they enter into what? Well, they enter into a bedroom. Okay, now how long are they in that bedroom? Well, he explains in the text, Isaiah 26. Uh, hide thyself for a little moment until the indignation be overpassed. Yeah, stop right there. The indignation is synonymous with wrath. So, they, the, the, so the people of God are going to be hidden in this chamber until the wrath of God runs its course. Huh, that sounds kind of familiar, doesn't it? Okay, so keep reading. For behold, the Lord cometh forth out of his place to visit upon the inhabitants of the earth. The inhabitants of the earth. Iniquity. Yes. And the earth also shall disclose her blood and shall no more cover her slain. Amen. So here you have a resurrection. The people of God are hidden during the wrath of God. And so what's very nice about when you look at the book of Revelation, you see this fulfilled literally. You see, yes, for seven years, the church is going to be hidden from the wrath of God. And this corresponds very nicely back to the wedding analogy. The wife and the husband, the groom, would be in the wedding chamber for how long? For seven days. And after that, you would have the, the marriage supper. So that's another, exactly what another we're analogy here. could be uh, the Passover. Yes, we're passed over from the wrath of God. It is. It's the great Passover, all by having the blood of the Lamb applied to the doorposts of our hearts, as it were, by faith alone in Christ alone. Exactly right. Absolutely. It's another Passover. Amen. So that's the marriage supper of the Lamb, and that's what they're celebrating. Now, we'll talk more about this next time. We'll finish talking about it. But, dear ones, that's why the saints are rejoicing. That's why they're singing praises to our God. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for the great day that you do come for us, that you bring us home so that where you are, we may be there also. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use the great promise of the marriage supper of the Lamb so that we would be a faithful bride to you that we'd be faithful to our groom, Jesus, until the day that he returns. I pray for my brothers and sisters. I pray for their stamina. I pray, Lord, that they'd forsake the fleeting pleasures of sin here and now 
for this glorious kingdom. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.